That's something good for me today. He does. Expectation. We come expecting. I want to welcome everybody watching my live stream. I want to welcome all of you here. I want to encourage you to share the stream. Join our connect with us and Facebook and Instagram and all of the social media. We say social media is lame. Social media is a powerful tool. I believe it's a gift to our generation. If we will use it correctly, we can influence many people for Jesus' kingdom. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, we're doing the book of John, and we're in John chapter 11. And so I'm going to read for you a section of this. We're going to take it probably in two weeks. We're going to read for you a section of this and break it down. So if you're following along or if you want to know where I'm at, we're going to start in John chapter 11, verse 1. And the Bible says, Now there was a certain man who was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. He was from the town of Mary and Martha, her sister. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped her feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but this sickness is an opportunity for the glory of God, so that the Son of God would be glorified through it. And now Jesus, now this is, this is the craziest statement in the world. Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he waited where he was for two more days. And then after, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, the Jews were trying to kill you there. Why are we going back there? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night without light, they stumble. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, Lazarus is sleeping, and we are going to wake him up. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but when they, when they, and they thought that he was just merely speaking of him resting. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Now, therefore, let us arise and go to him. This is one of the most famous stories in the Bible is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is a massive, massive topic. So there's impossible in, in an hour to break this down. But there's a lot of really cool things here, and so I want to share that with you. The Bible says there was a certain, name, his name, a certain man, his name was Lazarus. So who was Lazarus? Lazarus, well, um, well, first let me show you where Jesus is. Alex, do you have that map? We, sir, we spare no expense to bring you the finest in visual aids here at Elevate Miami Church. So there's two, there's two places of, called Bethany. Whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would always go to Bethany. And so the story is, picks up where there's two Bethanies going on. There's the Bethany, which is kind of like the suburb of Jerusalem down here. So this Bethany was like Jesus' Airbnb. So whenever he would go to, uh, whenever he would go to uh, Jerusalem, he never hung out in the city. Him and the boys would go to a crash pad outside of the city of Bethany. So this is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. But Jesus is with his disciples is at the Bethany across the Jordan. So he's about three miles away. Jesus liked hanging out in places called Bethany. Isn't that interesting? Say, so what's that all about? Hang on. We'll get there. So the first thing is, so those were, the, those were Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were his friends. They were people who loved Jesus, that welcomed, opened their home to Jesus, and connected very deeply with him. 
and it's speaking of their brother, Lazarus, and it says there's a certain man. Jesus' disciples would hang out there. His name comes from the name Eliezer. Now, it's highly likely, the Bible doesn't say this, but if you understand like the framework of the culture, which I do for the most part, if you understand how, the, how their culture was framed and how the Jews tended to operate within the culture, whether we like it or not, there was a lot of segregation among the Jewish people. They, there was a lot of segregation. So if you were, you know, they would d designate cities and towns, and you weren't, if you weren't in with the in crowd, you couldn't live where the in crowd was. And it wasn't just an issue of money, it was an issue of social acceptance and, you know, different things like that. So Lazarus is living in Bethany. So what's Lazarus's problem? And I'm going to get to Bethany in a minute. His name comes from Eliezer. So it's highly likely that, that uh, Lazarus is a Levite. How do we know this? Well, the Jews tended to name their, uh, they tended to carry family names with them forward. So if they were related to a relative, I mean, we do it the same, you know, grandpa's name was John, we named the grandson John, you know, we, we carry family names forward. They would carry not only family names forward, they would carry tribal names forward. So for instance, Saul of Tarsus was of the, anybody know what tribe he was from? Benjamin, right? Saul was from the tribe, the Jewish culture, there were 12 tribes. So the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. Technically there were 13. The Levites belonged to the Lord, so there were 12. And so God chose one for himself. And so you have Saul of Tarsus from the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after Saul the king, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. So you see the connection? Lazarus was named after Eliezer. Well, who's Eliezer? Eliezer was, Eliezer was Moses' brother Aaron's son. So what happens when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt... His desire, it tells us in Exodus, was that all of his people would be priests of the Lord. Say with me. This is what a priest does. Come on. This is a priestly ministry. The, the priestly ministry looks like this. We minister unto the Lord, we receive from the Lord, and then we minister unto others. That's the priestly ministry. How many knows the church is a kingdom of priests? Did you know that? We are a royal what? That's right. A holy nation chosen in our generation, called out of darkness into light to proclaim the praises of him. That's what we are. And so our job as Christians, and the, you know, this is, this is a disconnect a lot of times, especially I, I think a lot in a modern church, is that we come to church expecting God to minister to us when our first job is to minister to him. And when we minister to him, he ministers to us. And as he ministers to us, we are to minister to other people. And so what happens a lot of times in American churches, because we want it our way, we want it now. Gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. We don't kind of get, we don't understand that we are to minister unto the Lord. That's the first job of the priest. And so it would look like this, Lord, you're beautiful. My beloved is, is more beautiful than, than thousands. You know, we minister unto Jesus. We release our lives unto Jesus. We come before him, we worship him. And as we minister unto him with, with our lives, with our songs, with our prayers, with, with whatever, what happens is, is that we empty ourselves of ourselves, thereby making more room for him to minister to us. That's why most Christians, when they can't operate with the Lord, it's because the Lord can't do anything because you're so full of yourself. You're so full of your problems. You're so full of your ego. You're so full of your pride. You're so full of whatever it is, and you're expecting God to do something, and you want God to show up, and you're just kind of standing there going, any minute now, Lord, any minute now, any minute, you're going to get, you know, that, that's kind of what, the, that's our relationship. 
The Lord never designed it like that. He never designed his people to relate to him like that. He designed it, and everything in heaven operates. Honor creates what? Honor creates access. And so when we minister to the Lord, we are honoring him. We are emptying ourselves of ourselves, and we are honoring him. And when we honor him, we access him. Some of you have been waiting for God to minister to you. Some of you have been waiting for God to move. Some of you have been waiting for God to speak. It's because you don't minister to him. You don't minister to him. You know what I do every single morning, most mornings, I'm in some, making some kind of connection with the Lord. Why? Because I want to honor him. I need his presence in my life every minute of every hour of every day. And lately, I've just been waking up and going, good morning, Father. Good morning, Father. And allowing his presence to come to me from that context. You know, we, we, we never encounter the Lord. We, we're trying to get something from him, but we never give it to him. God set this dynamic up. This is the way it works, Christian. If we're priests, our first job is to minister unto him, is to bless him. Lord, we bless you. Lord, I want nothing from you. I want to honor you. You are so good, Lord. You are so good. You are so kind. You are so gracious. You say, I don't feel like that. It's not about your feelings. You do it in spite of your feelings. You bless God in spite of the way that you feel. You bless God in spite of your circumstances. We do it by faith, not by feelings. Listen, God's good whether your circumstances tell you that or not. Right? God's good. God's good. God's for you whether you can see that or not. He's for you. He's for you. And so we bless God in light of our circumstances. And then what is to happen is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see it in active time. You can see it in real time. We're worshiping Jesus. And as you worship Jesus and release yourself to Jesus and begin to step in and stop being aware of everything going on around you and begin to press towards him, what happens is inevitably the Holy Spirit begins to move in you and over you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no one? Anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about? The Spirit of God begins to move upon you. Why? Because we're ministering to him. He ministers to us. And then we have a break and we're all full of the Spirit. We're like, hey, hey, Allie, what's going on? Yeah, oh, man. You know, you, you're, 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 yeah, some of you connecting exactly with what I'm saying. But it's not just in the worship setting. It's not just in the church setting. It's understanding this as our role. This kingdom activates and operates a specific way. It doesn't operate and activate the way we think or the way we want it to. What we do is we create all these little mechanisms, you know, these machinations, and we create this machine. And then we say, okay, Jesus, move through that machine. He's not moving through that machine. He's not, he's not moving the way you want him to move. He moves the way he wants to move or the way he's designed that he will move. You understand? And we are to learn him. And as we learn him, we begin to operate and activate in him. And this is one of the ways that he moves is through ministry. We minister first and foremost unto the Lord. This was the intent when he brought Israel out of, out of Egypt. You're going to see this mirror. He brings Israel out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb and the, and the water, right? They come out through the blood of the, the sacrifice. God passes them through the watery, watery grave. He passes them and transcends them from their former life into a new beginning. And the first place he takes them, the very first place he takes them is to a mountain. And at the mountain, he exposes them to power. Very first place. Very first thing he does is he takes the believer and brings them to himself, out from, unto, boom, here's power. And what Israel did is Israel retreated from power. In Exodus, it clearly tells us, that you are my nation, you are my people, you are my priests. 
But the people stepped away from their role and said, we don't want to hear God's voice. We don't want to operate or stand near God's power. We're too freaked out by it. It's too weird for us. We don't want anything to do with that. And they vacated their destiny. And so God then therefore took a group of people. He took Aaron's line and he created the Levitical line. So to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. To be a high priest, you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. And he took the Levitical line and he created a group of ministers that would minister unto him, from him, to the people. And that created the Levitical caste because the people were designed to do that themselves. Read the story. And they backed away from power. What happens when you're born again? You guys ever read the Gospels? You read the book of Acts, right? What happens? The church gets born again, right? Saved, 5,000 saved. And before that happened, he told them to wait in Jerusalem until what? Until they'd be exposed to what? Power. Same mirror, same model. Same mirror, same model. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Very thing he does. When Christ brings you out of, the, out of darkness and into light, you see it with new believers. They're like lit up. Like all things are possible. Power, power, power. And then the church comes around them and like, calm down. Power died in the age of the apostles. You need to tone yourself down. You know, we, we do all of these things to get rid of that. And what happens is, is that Christians, in modern day, we pull away from power. Rather than leaning in, understanding it, growing in it, developing in it, and learning to press in and activate that, we push away from it. It's the same exact model. God brings us out of darkness and exposes us to power. Read the stories of the baptism. They get baptized and boom, they're whacked with the Holy Spirit. Immediately exposed to power. Jesus said, you're not going to do anything. Don't go forth from me. Stay where you are until you experience power. And once you experience power, then go and do what I tell you. You see it. It's clearly there. The model is the model of the priesthood is to minister to the Lord from the Lord unto others. That's the model. It's not Sunday going to meet and God's design and desires that all of his people are priests. What does that mean? We are all able to minister unto the Lord. We are all able to receive from the Lord and we are all capable of ministering outwardly from that experience unto others. That's his, that's his role. The most powerful ministry the church carries is one to the other. That's insanely powerful. That's what life groups are all about here. One of, the, one of the core values of our life groups is to try to get people to minister one to the other. A place where people can be prayed for, we can be, you know, this, this ministry one to the other can occur because it's very powerful. But we're all called, we're a kingdom of priests. We have different roles, different functions, same spirit, different manifestations, all that's true. Different offices, different positions, but you're all priests capable of ministering unto him, receiving from him, and releasing outwardly to others in word and in deed. This is the truth. And so uh, Lazarus' name is Eliezer, most likely related to the line of Eliezer. Eliezer was Aaron's son, and he became the high priest after Aaron. And so the line of Eliezer as high priest continued for a very long time until the high priest, one of the descendants, his name was Eli. Anybody know who Eli is? You ever heard of the name Eli? In the book of Samuel, Eli was the high priest. And so what's happening with Eli, Eli did not care about the things of God. He didn't care. Didn't matter to him. The dude holds a spiritual office of power and prophetic and all of these things, and it didn't matter to him. Not only did it not matter to him, the office that was given to him, he let his sons 
stay in a position even though they were extremely indulgent. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they liked to party like it was 1999. You know what I'm saying? They liked to live la vida loca. Live in la vida loca. You know, they liked to, they liked to do that. And what, what, what Eli should have done is says, look, dude, if you want to party like it's 1999, then you guys need to step out of the office and go party, go party your brains out. But what Eli's problem was is he allowed his indulgent sons to remain in the office of ministry before the people when they were not, when they were, they had disqualified themselves. Now, these guys, that wasn't because they were imperfect. What they were doing is that they were, they were, people would come with their offerings and they'd look at the people and say, that's not enough. You need to give me more. You need to give me more. And what God rebuked them on is he said, you make the offering to me a burden. You portray me before the people is that, I, I, is that not, not in, a, in a communal way, you portray me in the wrong way. It was misrepresentation of the Lord. He takes that very seriously. Misrepresenting him, carrying his name in an empty way, taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not saying God. It's carrying and representing him out of emptiness. God does not want himself represented out of emptiness. God does not, that's what vanity means. Emptiness means nothing. God does not want himself represented out of emptiness. He wants him represent, himself represented the right way. And Hophni and Phinehas were doing it the wrong way. The other thing is they were sleeping with the ladies of the temple. So the women would be bringing their offering and they'd be like, hey, girl, yeah, you know, flexing their chain, you know. That's right. Yeah, I'm a minister. That's right. You want me to lay hands on you? You want me to do that? I can do that. I could do. You know, why don't we go behind the tent? I'll give you some ministry right now. Let's go. Too close? Is that too close? So what's happening? They practice the laying on of hands. <laughs> A little too much. And God was trying to get Eli to correct him, and Eli wouldn't. And so the Lord removed Eli from that position. Eli was removed. So the house, say it with me, the house of Eli, or the house of Eliezer, say that, the house of Eliezer became broken. And God set them aside. And it remained until the, until the time of Abathar. Abathar was Eli's uh, grandson. And so Eli's house was still in ministry until the time of Abathar. Abathar was the high priest with David. That was David's high priest. But Abathar took up a rebellion and participated in a rebellion against David, trying to dethrone him. If you know the story, Absalom, David's son, was not appointed to him. God did not appoint him to take the throne, but Absalom's like, who's Jesus to tell me that? I'm going to take the throne. I'm going to take what's mine. And so Absalom created his own little world, and Abathar, David's high priest, supported Absalom. And when Solomon came to the throne, Solomon was the one God chose. Long story there. Won't get into all that. But God chose Solomon. When Solomon came to his throne, he took Abathar, which was the last of the house of Eliezer, and he removed Abathar's high priest, and he put another one of Aaron's line, the house of Zadok, on the throne, and that became the priestly line up until the time of the Romans. And so the house of Zadok, now, so there was a dissociation. Lazarus most likely was a descendant of the Eliezer line. Most likely. Plausible, completely plausible. Provable? No, because the text doesn't give us that. But we can understand this flow. Well, how do we know this too? Because Lazarus lived in Bethany. Do you know what the name Beth you know what the word Bethany means? Say it with me. House of the broken. Isn't that crazy? 
Here's the broken one of the house of Eliezer living in the house of the broken. They would create cities and they'd say, all the dissidents, you go to that city. All the Gentiles, you go to that city. All the, all the lepers, you go there. All the people that are being sued and you need refuge, you go there. They had all these cities that were, so, were, were really, your state in life, your status in life would be determined by the city that you're, you live in. <laughs> Where do you live, Bethany? Oh, you're from the house of the broken. But you know what's fascinating? Jesus didn't, when he went to Jerusalem, he never went to the house of the religious. The most common place you find Jesus is in the house of the broken. He loves the house of the broken. He wasn't even in Bethany of Jerusalem. When he was in the area and he was across the Jordan, he's like, yo, where's the Bethany? Where are the, where are the broken people at? Where are the broken people that I can connect with and associate with? This is Jesus. This is your God. This is your king. This is your Lord. He comes to you. He comes beneath you to serve you. He will put your life back together if you'll let him. Amen. If you'll let him. Crazy. Zadok becomes the priest. I'll finish this story and then we'll go into Bethany. Zadok becomes the high priest and, and his line continued as a high priest until the Romans came. This is the time of Jesus. Right before the time of Jesus, the Romans came. The Romans didn't care about Jewish lineage. They didn't care. Hey, we're supposed to have a descendant of the son of Aaron on the, uh, as the high priest. The, Jew, the Romans are like, nah, we're not doing that. And they tossed it out. And then they went, hey, we're auctioning off the high priesthood. Anybody want to bid on the high priesthood? And the Romans took bids on the high priesthood. And so certain families were allowed, and they, they sold the high priesthood to the highest bidder. So when you see, and you're going to see as the, as, the, as the story goes on, you're going to see two guys that are very prominent, two of the high priests. You're going to see Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was not a descendant of Aaron. He might have been a Levite, but he was not a direct descendant of Aaron. Therefore, he held that office of the high priest, according to God's economy, illegitimately. He was there by political power and power alone. And his father-in-law's name was Annas. So Annas apparently won the auction. And so Annas became the high priest. Caiaphas marries Annas' daughter, thereby becoming the heir to Annas. Annas did something. Nobody knows what Annas did. And Augustine, the Roman emperor, said, Ah, Annas, uh, we don't want you ruling anymore. So the, the, the Roman emperor removed Annas and appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, as the high priest. But you still see Annas involved. If you've ever read the Gospels, you'll see Annas and Caiaphas, Caiaphas and Annas, Annas and Caiaphas. And it's as if Ca Annas is influencing Caiaphas, if you get the picture. So the power behind the throne kind of thing. So this is the story. The priesthood at the time of Jesus was broken. The office existed, but the line did not exist. God would still minister, and you'll see that too, through the line. Caiaphas actually prophesies even though he's an illegitimate high priest. It is expedient that one man die so that the nation may live. And the Bible will tell you it doesn't, Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. He was prophesying. He was prophesying through the office that he held. You know, Caiaphas had Paul struck, you know, and uh, Paul called him a whitewashed tomb and he had his mouth struck and, and he said, I didn't know that you were the high priest. He's not supposed to be the high priest, but he was. And so this is a story of the priesthood. It's most likely Lazarus was from this broken line of Eliezer. Most likely. His name's Lazarus. He's living, in the, he's living in the house of the broken. And Bethany is the house of the broken. Jesus doesn't hang out with the religious. 
Jesus doesn't hang out with the pretentious. Jesus doesn't hang out with the people who think they got it all going on. Oons, 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 oons. He's not looking for glamour. He's looking for reality. He wants real people. Eh? That's what he wants. He's not looking, you know, he's not looking to hang out. He's not looking to be part of the in crowd. Jesus is the in crowd, people. He doesn't need to be part of the in crowd. He is the in crowd. So wherever Jesus is, there's the in crowd. Welcome to the in crowd. You're in with the in crowd. He's not hanging out with those people. If you've studied the life of Christ, you see how much he's trying to get away from those people. He's like, yeah, it's about 6 o'clock. I'm out. You know, he doesn't want to be around them anymore. He goes to Bethany, and he just chills. He just chills. He hangs out. This tells us something. This tells us that the house of broken is healed through communion with the Lord. Jesus goes to the house of the broken, and he communes with Lazarus. The one you love, it's a Greek word phileo, the one you are friendly with. To be a friend means to be open. Jesus uses the word agapeo when it says he loved them, he sought their highest good. But when Martha's calling him, she says, the one that you love, phileo, the one that's your friend, the one who's opened his heart to you, the one who's opened his life to you, the one that you shared your life with, the friend is sick. The house of the, he, say it with me, the house of the broken. <laughs> say it with me. My house of brokenness is healed through communion with Jesus. Being, come on, somebody wants to clap on that. Let's go. Being known, say it with me, being known and allowing him to be known by me. This is how it works. This is what changes us. This is what transforms us. This is what renews us, Christian. It's not a set of rules, you know? It's not a set of doctrine. Look, I'm all in on doctrine. I'm a doctrine guy is what I do. But that is, that is a frame, right? That all do what doctrine is is the frame around the picture. The picture is the relationship. The beauty and the wonder is the relationship, not the frame. And we're worshiping the frame, you know? <laughs> the picture is the relationship with Jesus. He's looking for those who know they are broken. And guess what? All of us are. Jesus said, the well have no need of a physician, nor do the righteous have any need. I don't come to call the righteous with the, with the broken to, to salvation. And the, well, the sick don't need a healer, or the, the, the well don't need a healer, but the sick do. It's, it's really, it's, an, it's, a, it's a play. The, he's talking to them about self-righteousness because there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all broken. Every one of us is broken. None of us are together. I don't even care how long you've been walking with the Lord. I've been walking with the Lord for decades, and I still got stuff. I still got stuff. But his strength is perfected in my weakness. And what I've learned is not self-reliance, but Jesus' reliance. I'm not smart enough. I've tried that already. I've tried to be smart. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> he's the only answer I have. And he's a good one. And this is, how, this is how transformation happens in the life of the believer. And if you've been around the church for any period of time and you love Jesus and you're just trying to buy into this thing and get, get close to him and you look at the way that actually what, what happens, you don't see a tremendous amount of transformation going on in people's lives. I mean, we create learning environments and those are good. Learning environments are healthy, but transformative environments are what he wants. Where we become someone we've never been before. Anybody want that? <laughs> Come on. This is what he wants. 
And we, we create a transformative environment here. That's what, because it's what Jesus wants. We give you all the learning you want, but we're, we're, we're transformative church. Jesus is looking for those who know they're broken, all of us are. Those who know they are lost and all of us are. We're rebels without a clue, you know? We're, even, even when we know Jesus, we're still lost. We still don't really know which way to go, you know? We don't understand what do you want, Lord? You know, we don't, we, there are certain things, even, even when we're in Christ, we're still not clear. He's clear. I have a word for you. Say it with me. I don't know what I'm doing, but Jesus does, and I can trust Jesus. And if you'll look to him, he will show you great and mighty things that you not, uh, know not of. He will lead the way if you'll let him, if you'll let him. What does this teach us? Brokenness is dealt with in communion, which is his abiding presence, intimate friendship. She used the word phileo. What's this mean? It means letting down your guard, allowing the Lord to know you, allowing the Lord to know you, not worshiping at a distance is what we do. We give our hearts to Jesus, but we leave him at a distance. One of the reasons we do that, well, there's a lot of reasons we do that. One of the reasons is ego, right? We protect our lives with ego. Another reason is indulgence. We actually think it's all about us, and Jesus is the accessory to your lifestyle. That's a modern American. That's, that we teach that all day long. You get to watch four messages on that today. Jesus is the accessory to your lifestyle. Now, they may not say it that way, but that's what you get. He's all about you. He's not about you. He's about him and his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and what is right to him. And as you follow him, you become. As you believe, you connect, belong, and then you become. This is the idea. He's not about your dreams and visions. He's about his dreams and visions. He's about his dreams and visions that he has for you. Not about your dreams and visions that you have for you. You see the difference? It's all about Jesus. It, it's all about Jesus. Allowing him to speak to you and speak to your issues. This is what it means to be known. And the other reason we don't connect with the Lord is that we have a fear of vulnerability. We're egotistical and arrogant, or we're indulgent, or we, or we, we, we don't allow our lives to become vulnerable with him. And the reason for that is, is we've been hurt so many times. Anybody, can I get a witness? It's very hard to be vulnerable in a broken world. Adam hid himself, very first thing he did. Vulnerability entered the human condition immediately. And Adam was vulnerable. And he felt that God was going to judge him. Hmm? That's what he felt. And the Lord's like, who told you that? We were naked and exposed. We were vulnerable, Lord, so we hid. We hid from you. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Whose voice... Have you been listening to that is not mine? Whose voice have you lowered yourself to that is not mine? It's all about voices, Christian. That's a big piece of this. It's all about voices. Who told you that? Who told you you're not going to make it? Who told you it's not going to work out? Did Jesus? Did Jesus tell you that? No? Well, then it's going to work out. Who told you there's no, there, you're, you're, it's over? You know, you're stuck in yesterday. You know, you're, it's the final countdown or whatever. Who told you that? Did Jesus? Absolutely not. And that's what he would ask you. Who told you that? Who told you you can't change? Did I tell you you can't change? Did I tell you there's no way out of this? No. Whose voice are you listening to, Kevin? 
You see, that's what happened to the fall. Man lowered their voice. They lowered ourselves to listen to a foreign voice that is not our father's. And we have to train ourselves and equip ourselves and develop ourselves to hear his voice above all others. Above, and you know what it means above all others? I'll give you the biggest voice that speaks against you, your emotions. <laughs> yeah, it's not even outward voices. There's a lot of outward voices, but the strongest voice that opposes you is the inward one, the voice of your emotions, the traitor that's inside of you. There's a traitor in you. Betrays you with fear. Yeah. Betrays you with memories of your past. That traitor partners with the devil. The devil's like, yeah, that's right, girl. It ain't, you ain't going nowhere. Nobody loves you. Nobody's gonna, nobody cares about you. You failed five times, bro. You're going to fail again. This is the same thing you've done five times in a row. <laughs> Did Jesus tell you that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Letting your guard down, allowing the Lord to know you, and allowing him to speak to your issues. Ready? Here's a, I'm going to give you a look. I've been, I've been a Christian for too long. Too long. Too long. I've been doing this too long. I love Jesus. I want kingdom culture. I'm not interested in church culture and all the little niceties that we create as a church. And we don't want to step across lines. Well, I don't mind stepping across a line as long as it's not, that line is not the Lord's, Right? So we create these niceties. And most Christians don't believe they don't have any issues because if I had an issue, then Jesus would tell me about my issue. But Jesus isn't telling me about my issue, so I don't have any issues. Why well, say to you, who told you that? Why don't you ask the Lord what your issues are? The Lord, say with me, the Lord will never tell me my issues unless I ask. You have to ask him. And when he tells you your issues, your next question is, Lord, what is the way forward? You have, this relationship with God is predicated on questions, always questions. And it's not just any question, it's the right question. David said, search me and know me. See if there's anything that is not right within me. It's very biblical. What's my major malfunction, Jesus? Why do I keep screwing up? What is causing me to screw up? What is the root of this? Where is this coming from? It's not a why question, it's always a what, where, and when. Don't ask why questions. What is going on here that I'm not aware of? What is it that I cannot see? What is it that I'm not aware of? Where's the brokenness within me? Where's the dysfunction within me? Where does that come from? How do I get past that? What is the way forward? These are communal questions. Why? Say it with me. The house of brokenness is healed through communion. Mm-hmm. You get the picture? You get the picture? Just a thought. <laughs> allowing the Lord to speak to your issues and communicating to him your pain and your loss. This is where we don't get vulnerable. You know, you've been broken. You've been hurt. So I, and you don't trust anyone with that pain. You can trust Jesus with the pain. Look, pain's real. Pain's real, right? Anybody lost anything? Huh? Anybody? Anybody had any painful losses? Yeah? Anybody want to tell the truth in the room? Has there been any painful losses in your life at all? There have been painful losses. Your pain is real. Your pain is valid. It's true. But you don't have to keep it. Your pain is a reality, but it's not a truth. You can heal these things. You can get past these things. You can move on. There is a way forward. And we have to learn to communicate our pain. We have to learn to share that with, with the Lord. He's the wonderful counselor. 
Say, I need Dr. Phil. No, you need Dr. Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. <laughs> He'll show you in a living, real relationship. What would it look like if we had an army of people who operated in a real and living relationship with Jesus? We would change the world. That's first century church. They didn't have the Bible, Christian. First century church didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have it. They were writing it. Huh? First 90 years of the church, there was no canon. There was no Bible. They were a collection of letters. And then about 100 years after the church, they gathered those letters and said, hey, we better keep a record of this because this is some important stuff. There's a whole other story about how they formed that, and it was, it's all the Holy Spirit, and it's all the Lord, this, all this is true. But they didn't have the Bible. They had the Holy Spirit. So how did they do what they did? It wasn't because they read some text. It was because they learned in reliance and communed on, in relationship with the Holy Spirit. They had the Old Testament, so there was a bit of a framework there, somewhat. Even though the Lord tore all that down, there were some things that they could carry forward. But for the most part, the first century church set the world on fire, not through doctrine, but through this power of, you get that? Through the communal aspect of the Holy Spirit, who will speak to you, who will lead you, who will guide you. He's the spirit of truth. Is this not true? When the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you where? Into all truth. All truth. Holy Spirit leading into truth. Got me? He will show you what is to come. That's prophetic. He will lead you in, and, he will, and he will take from what is mine and make it known to you. That's the inheritance. That's the kingdom power. Nobody liked the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that. The greatest gift ever given to the church outside of salvation is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is, he is the, the, T-H-E. Jesus said, all manner of blasphemy will be forgiven against the Father. All manner of blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven. But do not speak against the Holy Spirit. Do not. Because <laughs> he's gentle, he's kind, he's all-powerful. He's insane. He's insane. He's crazy. Crazy good. He's more wild than you are. Hmm? He's more free than you are. And he cares about your freedom and your liberty more than you do. Amen. He cares about your life more than you do. He cares about your future more than you do. He comes immediately when you ask. Holy Spirit, come. Boom. Immediately. You can be high on drugs. Holy Spirit, come. Boom. I know dudes that were checking out with a heart attack. You know, Christians doing drugs, la vida loca, dying, Holy Spirit. He comes immediately. He doesn't go, you know, you did this yourself. You know, when are you ever going to learn? You know, I'm debating whether I'm going to help you at all. You know, I've only helped you like 18 times, and I'm debating whether I'm going to help you. He doesn't give you a lecture. He gives you help. Parakletos, immediately. We're the barrier. We think, oh, I've asked God too many times. 70 times 7 in a day. Have you asked him that many times? You need Jesus, and he knows it. You need his power, and he knows it. And the more you partner with his power, the more you get familiar with his power, and the more you're more in tune with him, him, him maturing you. That's why we don't mature spiritually, because we're not relying upon spiritual power. If you listen to Jesus, he'll tell you. He'll teach you. You know, Lord, he'll be like, hey, Kevin, um, you know, I've helped you 15 times, and I'm going to keep on helping you, so you don't have to worry about that. But, you know, you're carrying some bags here, you know. you got a lot of burdens in your life. You know, do you feel like putting those bags down? No, Jesus, I got these bags. I'm going to keep carrying these bags. 
I'm going to keep carrying these bags. And you're sweating, still dragging your bags behind you. Holy Spirit's like, hey, you want to put those down? You know, I can help you put those down. No, Lord, I got these bags. These bags been with me since I was five years old. I got these bags. These bags are with me. <laughs> he wants to free you. Most people don't want to go free because they don't know who they will be without their pain. Their pain has intertwined itself into their soul. And they don't know who they will be. And so they cling to what is familiar, even though it's painful. It's familiar. And they'll hold the familiar. Say it with me. I renounce all aspects of a familiar and broken life that I no longer own. I choose a future of hope with Jesus. And I refuse to be bound by the lingering aspects of a familiar and broken life that I no longer own. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to open me to that which opposes me and that which is a barrier between you and me. In Jesus' name, come on. Well, that's dynamite. I don't know if y'all just staring there looking at me pray. I'm not praying that for me. I pray that all the time. I pray stuff like that all the time. That's for y'all. This Christianity is not a spectator sport. It requires your participation. Take the red pill, Neo. Come down the rabbit hole. See what it's like outside the matrix. See where the wonderland lives and where the wonder is. Our issues, Jesus says, Hebrews says he's touched with all of our points. He's touched with all of our infirmities. He knows everything. He knows all of our brokenness. He knows your physical issues, your emotional issues, and your relational issues, and he wants to help you. He wants to help you. He won't do it without you, Christian. You got to realize, oh, God, I'm just waiting on God to heal my brokenness. Oh, wait, no. Have you partnered with him with your brokenness? Have you discussed your brokenness with him at all? Are you even aware of what your brokenness is? How can God give you something that you're not even aware that you have? How long? Just a question. Just a question. This thing is a partnership, man. The house of the broken is healed through communion. The house of Bethany is healed through communion. Your broken finances is healed through communion. Your broken relationships are healed through communion. The broken mind and the way that you think is healed through communion. Your broken body is healed through communion. Whatever the house of brokenness is in your world, it is healed through communion with Jesus, 100%. He's the God of the turnaround and the God of the restoration. He's not the God. He's the God of yesterday, today, and forever. He can heal your past. He can recenter you in the present, and he can get you to own a hopeful future. This is what he does. This is all he does. He's waiting on you. I'm waiting on Jesus. He's waiting on you. Learn to commune with him. Learn to connect with him. We want immediate answers. Jesus wants process. It's interesting. We want immediate answers. God, deliver me. Shazam. That's what we want. It's always a process. It is always a process. Do you know why? Because the process requires relationship. And the very thing that the Lord hungers for more than anything else, don't ask me why, <laughs> is relationship with you. It's what he wants more than anything. He gave up his kingdom. He took all of his chips and pushed them in and said, this means nothing. That means everything. And I come from the world to give Jesus what he wants. You want relationship, Lord? Then break me until I give it to you. Then disassemble me until I give it to you. Then restructure me in my thinking and my way of life until I am the kind of person that gives you what you want. Where's your faith? Where are you at? Are you a distant worshiper, right? 
Are you, a, are you that? Are you a communer? The one who wants it all. I want it all. <laughs> I want everything he is and everything he has for me. He's the hope of glory. He's everything. He's everything. He's everything. <laughs> we want immediate answers. Jesus wants relationship. <laughs> Crazy. Say it with me. The Lord will deliver me. He will fulfill his promises. But it's always through a process. And you know what happens? Here's, here's what I notice. Ready? Here's what I notice. This is interesting because I am a practitioner of this stuff. I notice that as I have become a communer, the answers have come much faster because I'm in communion with him. You get me? My deliverance, my answers, the word that I need, the direction comes quicker because I'm already in communion. You're already there. But when you're not in communion with him, he uses a process to bring you into communion. Bring you into communion. Bring you into communion. It's always that. Wheat, wine, and oil are all created the same way. Anybody know how they're created in the Bible? They all, they all have the same process. And they're crushing. Wine is created through crushing. Oil is created through crushing. Wheat becomes useful when it is crushed. And you know what is crushing? Your ego, your pride, your self-indulgence, your arrogance. That is always what he's crushing. Or your fear, whatever the barrier is. So here again is the game. The game is the Holy Spirit's activity in the life of the believer is always to oppose anything that, he's, is to remove anything that is a barrier to relationship. If your fear is a barrier to your relationship and walking with the Lord, he's going to zero in on your fear. If your self-indulgence is that, he's going to zero in on it. Whatever it is, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's trying to bring you into a communal relationship because that's where we live. In him we live, move, and have our being. From that center, all life exists. And as you live from that center, now he's able to guide you and direct you. The Bible says that he wills to lead us with his eye, but we're so arrogant he has to lead us with a bit. He's got to take the horse by the bit and go this way, right? Because most of us are arrogant and egotistical. And when you ask Jesus into your life, he actually takes you at his word. When you give your life to him, you invite the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually takes you at his word. And the Holy Spirit is actively working to try to bring you into communion. That's what he's trying to do. That's why you're frustrated, right? The Bible says, by a man's choices, his life becomes a calamity, yet his heart rages against the Lord. By our own idiocy, we create the messes in our lives, and then we say, you did this to me. Another story, another day. <laughs> we, live in, we, we live misaligned lives, and we wonder why we don't produce the fruit of the kingdom, because we live misaligned lives. Oh, we can live religious lives. You can look religious. Oh, my gosh, good God. You, know, you can be religious. You can have suit and tie, hair high and tight. You know, freshly clean, glistening with gel, all this stuff. You can look amazing, right? You can look holy. You can look righteous. That doesn't mean anything. And you cannot be in communion with the Lord. None of that stuff matters to him. What matters is the relationship. That's what matters, always. Ego, indulgence, avoidance. The house of the broken is healed through a process. You don't know anything. He knows everything. That means renew the mind. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. That's kingdom realignment. Courage to deal with the pain and the loss and the choices and the brokenness. With our vulnerability, that's communion. When you commune with the Lord, say it with me. When I commune with the Lord, 
So what happens? You're communing with the Lord. And when you be, begin to develop this relationship, you're going to dialogue with him. You're going to share your heart, his presence, his power, all this stuff. What the Lord will do is he will give you affirmation. Some of you need to be affirmed. You're loved. You're loved on your worst day. We give you the affirmation of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit loves you on your worst day. He is for you even when you're against yourself. So what the Holy Spirit will do, he will affirm you. And we need affirmation, you know. No matter how powerful a warrior you think you are as a Christian, you will be weakened because we're human. And you need to go back to dad and say, Lord, am I still doing this right? Are you still for me? You know, you need the affirmation. We all do. And through the communion, say, he will give me affirmation. He will give you counsel. The communion gives you counsel. You'll know what to do and when, and you won't even know why you know it. Anybody got that? And that comes from the communion. He'll tell you what to do and when. Wisdom in the spirit, not in, you know, he'll tell you. You need correction. Here's the one we have a hard time with, correction. He'll let you keep sputtering and stopping and sputtering and stopping until you come to him and ask him what, what's going on here. What's going on here? We, we are under the, the lie or the deception that we have to do this by ourselves. You don't have to do it by yourself. Why, what's going on here, Lord? What am I not seeing? What, what am, what, where am I off course? Is there anything around me? Am I making decisions? Sometimes he's told me it's circumstantial, Kevin. Stay the course. These are just circumstances. Hold the line. This is just a storm, right? You're going over the storm. You're going to go forward. Other times he's told me to redirect. You know, he's confronted me. And when I ask him what's going on here, what, what, what's the pattern that keeps repeating itself? Where's the root of that? vacating your responsibilities. He'll, he'll tell you stuff like this, man. Some of you are looking for a mentor. There's no better mentor than the Holy Spirit. I can assure you of that. And we should mentor and share our lives with one another, and we should do all that. That's all necessary. But, you know, there's no one like him. He'll give you correction, and he'll give you direction through revelation. It's giving our lives to Jesus. So this is what the kingdom looks like. Give your life to Jesus. Say it with me. The kingdom looks like this. Come on, help me out. Right. I give my life to Jesus. I develop. I deal with my junk. And I go do great things. This is the kingdom. Anybody want that? I want that. <laughs> I want to come to Jesus. I want to grow and become, right? I want to grow and become. I want to develop. And then I want to go and deal with my issues, get rid of my junk. And then I want to go do great things. Whatever those great things may be. That's the kingdom. He comes to the house of brokenness. Say this. We're going to say a prayer. Just say it with me. Holy Spirit, come to my house of brokenness. I know nothing. You are everything. Counsel me. Correct me. Direct me in your ways for your glory and for my benefit in Jesus' name. So I got 10 minutes. I'm going to roll this through in 10 minutes. Man, come on. Jesus says this sickness is not unto death. This is an important piece of this story too. It's how Jesus sees death. Everybody knows death's a reality, don't you? With death, that's a real part of our lives. None of us are getting out of here alive. I'd love to get out of this place alive, but the odds are that none of us are getting out of this place alive. 60 million people die almost every day, I think. There's some unreal number, the number of people that die every day. Jesus has a very clear picture of death, and he illuminates it for us. He says, this sickness is not unto death, but is an opportunity for the glory of God. He uses the Greek word thanaton. Say it with me, thanaton. Right? Sounds like the Avengers or something, like Thanos, you know, Thanaton. So he uses the word Thanaton. Thanaton means eternal separation. 
So the Lord is saying, what he's saying is, Lazarus, this sickness that Lazarus has experienced, he's like, everybody, you know, have a Cinnabon. This is not unto eternal separation. You know, that's the first thing. So what he's telling us is that there is an eternal separation. Thanaton is the same word. This is the same Greek word that is used in Revelation 21. Then when Jesus, when the Bible talks about the second death, not just the death of the body, but the death of the spirit, the eternal condemnation of the spirit of those who are outside of Christ. Same word, thanaton. So Jesus is like, this is not thanaton. <laughs> Another Greek word is necro, which just means your body is dead. And then he uses this other word, apothanesco. Apothanesco is when the spirit leaves the body. So there's three frames in this. Not, there's two. Two of the three are in this story. There's, there's thanaton, which means eternal separation. So you know what that means? Eternal separation is very, very real. How do we know? Because Jesus told us so, right? Apothanesco, which is when your spirit leaves your body. You're a spirit being living in a body. You have a soul. So your spirit, so this is the dynamic, your spirit is what makes you uniquely you. It's what makes you different than everybody around. We're spirit. That's our individuality. That's the uniqueness of our personhood. It, with that spirit, attached to that spirit, is a soul, which is a mind, a will, and an emotion. So we have a soul, right? So the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. The Greek word for soul is suke or psyche. And the Greek word for body is soma. So we are a three-part being. When you become born again, your spirit is born again. You're just like, whoa. It's like you're a different person. You know what I'm talking about? You're a different person. But then all of a sudden you realize I still got a lot of the junk that I used to have, right? You're carrying, you got, I, still got, I still got all this junk, but you're born again. The junk's in the soul, if you get me. Another story for another day, but the spirit is what's born again. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotion. And then you have a body, which is a soma, which is a biological entity that you're walking around in. Your body, this is where, I'll just jump off on this. Do I have time? I don't know. All right, do I have time? All right, I'm going to try to help people. This, this is really the dynamic. A lot of sicknesses, disease, and issues are because there's undealt with junk within the soul. That they would say it's psychosomatic. It's something within the soul that is causing the soma. The psycho is causing the soma to react. You get me? And a lot of the issues with a Christian isn't because they're not born again. Their issues are within the soul. Our body tends to manifest. What our body really is is a responder. Whatever's going on in us, it responds. It responds to the emotions that you feel. Anger, you know, love. You know, that's our body is a responder. It's responding to the emotional state that we're in most of the time. Your body also responds to the food that you put in it, right? You're like, dang it. That means I'm a hot dog and a Snickers bar. That's what, that's what I am. You know, as you are what you eat kind of thing. But your body responds to the food that you put in it. And your body responds to the, to, the, uh, to the emotional state or the mental state that you're in. This is what happens. And so, it's, you know, there, there's a process in the scripture. Churches, we don't practice this at all. This is a lost art. It's just not done anymore. There's, there's been a shift focus. Long story. Won't get into all that narrative. But where there's no healing within the soul. The Bible calls it the restoration of the soul. He restores my soul, right? Is it the 23rd Psalm, right? You know what I'm talking about? And th that, that language of the restoration of the soul is all through the Old Testament in particular. In the New Testament, if you read the stories of the very early church, they had a soul restoration process. It was intermingled with something they called deliverance. In modern terms, we would call it inner healing and deliverance. So they would do inner healing 
and deliverance. They often did this. They actually had this process before they would actually even baptize these people. Before they would baptize, this is how extreme they were. This is how hardcore committed they were to this, is that they would do inner healing and, and, and deliverance before they would baptize them. And the writings say to ensure the purity of the soul, the to ensure the purification of the soul and the deliverance from the gods. Because these people were worshiping crazy gods. They had all kinds of spiritual junk, spiritual issues, emotional damage, all kinds of stuff going on. Bag of cats, right? And as Christians, we bring the bag of cats into the kingdom. And then we got the whole, and then we wonder why the bag of cats is going like this. Atypical, Christians fall away from church within five years. They don't not fall away from Jesus, they fall away from church. And most of the time, it's because they can't deal with their inner dysfunctions. And they find that the teaching and whatever it is, although it's helpful, it doesn't transform them and it doesn't shift them. Mm, too close? Am I too close? Yeah, too close? Yeah. Oh, I don't have any issues. Okay, it's all good. We're friends. Love you. Bless you. All things moving forward. But he uses this word thanaton. Thanaton is eternal separation. He waits two more days. <laughs> I love you guys. Hey, guys, he's like this. Mary and Martha, I love you. He uses the word agapeo, which means to seek the highest good. So the word of love in this context, Jesus is like, I'm seeking your highest good. I love you guys. I'll be there in two days. Imagine that. You're in a crisis. You're in a meltdown. Everything is just, you know, you need it now. And Jesus is like, just give me a couple days. I'll be there in a couple You'd be like, what? Are you crazy? You know, imagine that. But he does. Because he's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. And he shows up. And you're like, it's gone, Lord. Oh, it's gone. If you'd only been here. Like Mary, if you'd only been here. Jesus is like, I am here. There's nothing lost that I cannot restore. There's nothing dead that I cannot bring to life. I am the resurrection. Mary's going to talk, we're to share a little bit next week about the resurrection. I know in the resurrection, Mary knew her doctrine really well. Jesus is like, forget the doctrine, Mary. I am the doctrine. I am the resurrection. I'm here right now. Resurrection power is right here. This is what we carry as believers according to Romans. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Resurrection power. You carry, come on, hold your hands out. Shake it in there. Come on, just shake it. Just say, in the name of Jesus, I acknowledge that I carry resurrection power. I will not walk in ignorance any longer. You carry resurrection power. You carry it. You don't know what you're doing, but you carry it. You carry it. The art is to learn it, to understand it, to begin to wield it, to begin to move in it. That's the glory. That's the, that's, that's the difference. But the fact is, if you're in Christ, you carry resurrection power. It might be dormant. It might be sealed down tight, taped up in a box. You know, we got to start opening up these boxes and see the gifts that Jesus has inside of you. Some of you take the Holy Spirit and shove him in a closet. Don't want anything to do with him. He's everything. If I have I said that already? Yes, I have. I'll say it again. He's everything. The disciples are like, Rabbi, you're going to Jerusalem? Are you tripping? They would just left Jerusalem and they were trying to kill you. You want to go back there? That's basically it. They're thinking, here's what they're really thinking. If you go there, they're going to try to kill you. And if they try to kill you, well, and they're probably going to try to kill us. And this is why they're like going, if he's sleeping, you know, he'll wake up. You know, they keep giving all these excuses. We really don't have to go to Judea, Lord. We really don't have to go. This isn't necessary. And Jesus says this, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, they will not stumble. 
because the light is in them. But if one walks in the night, they will stumble because there is no light in them. What is he saying here? So Reformation theology, which isn't always bad, but the Reformation theology says, what Jesus is saying here is que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. So what, they, what some writers or some scholars or some people would look at and they would say, what Jesus is saying here, hey, whatever happens is what's going to happen. But that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. When Jesus speaks cryptically, you can almost guarantee it's prophetic. Anytime Jesus says something that you're like, what the heck does that mean? You can almost put your money down and know that there's something prophetic there. Because he hides things within the prophetic. Because those that don't honor the prophetic don't get to access the things that are in the prophetic. If you don't honor the prophetic, you will not access the prophetic. It's plain and simple as that. What he's saying here, he's using prophetic language. This is actually prophetic language that he's using. And if these Jews, these, these disciples that were around him, they would have been very versed in prophetic language. The Jews were all into numbers. They still are. That's the whole basis of, uh, what is that? Uh, Kabbalah. Yeah, the whole basis of Kabbalah is Jewish numerology or numbering. And it's not something new. They've been doing it for centuries. They count numbers, they're, 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 all of these different things. The number 12 is the prophetic number of human government. Now, we all know there's not 12 hours, in the, there's not 12 hours of daylight in the day. We all know that. We know that. Tell that to somebody in Alaska. Hey, Jesus says there's 12 hours in a day. You Christians are idiots. There's more than 12 hours of light in a day. He's not using that. He's using a figurative language. He's saying 12, the number of human government, and the natural day. So when it comes to the way the system is, these people wanting to kill you, and the alignment of this natural world, I am the difference maker. And if you walk with me, this system doesn't call, you will not stumble. This is the prophetic language. What he's actually doing, the number 13, is the government of heaven. 13 and 25 is the government of heaven. He's like, look, 12 is human government. And I could break that down, which I'm not going to. But the 12 is human government or the system of this world. And the number 12 is what it is. When you add the 13, you get a picture of heaven. So, well, just to give you context, there's 24 elders and one high priest in the eternal. Another story, I won't get into that. But that is the government of heaven. If the Jews didn't have 24 elders, they were to create 12 and create, and create someone that sat in a 13th position. So they were, if they, either they had the fullness of the measure of the government of heaven with 25, or they had the measure of the government of heaven with 13. This is what Jesus is talking about. They would have known what he's talking about. They understand what 12 and 13 is in Jewish language. They would have got that crystal. And they would understand that he's talking about a natural day, and they would have understood that 12 is the number of human government and system of the world. So that's what he's saying. They're freaking out. The system's going to kill us. We're going to die. And Jesus is like, when it comes to the system of the world, when you add me to the equation, nothing's going to happen. Nothing. That's what he's saying. But if you want to walk in the system of the world and I'm not in the equation, you're going to stumble. That's what he's saying. Unadulterated truth right there. If I'm with you, nothing's going to happen. Doesn't matter. You won't stumble because the light is with you. The 12, the government of the world, no matter what it opposes you, I'm the difference maker. If you want to go out there and do it on your own, the system will destroy you. will grind you to powder and leave you in the wake. Anybody been there? Huh? world's not a friendly place. Evil world, good Jesus. That's what it's all about. This is what he's telling them because they're tripping. That's why he tells them this. They, they're, they're thinking they're going to die. You know, they just tried to kill you, Jesus. You know, we're over the river to try to keep ourselves from these people. If we go back there, they're going to see you, and they're going to try to kill you. And Jesus is like, eh, 
And nah, not really. You know, he's, he's greater than that. So Jesus makes this statement, and he said, Lord, he sleeps. And then he tells him that he's dead, and he uses the word apothenesco. means his spirit has left his body. Jesus waits until Lazarus is dead, and his spirit has left his body. So again, this tells us that our spirit will live forever. When you go into the ground, that's not the end of the game. Your spirit lives eternally. And we'll live apothenesco, your spirit will leave their body, and he uses the word thanaton. You, the possibility of being eternally separated exists. It exists. Not everyone's saved, Christian. This is why Jesus came. You must be born again. We're all born separated. And as we're born separated, when we die, the state of our, of our heart, the state of our spirit is thanaton, eternally separated, eternally lost. We live forever. The human spirit endures forever. We either live within the house and the family of God eternally, happy day, or we live outside of the house of God, not a very good day at all. The choice is yours. And one of the things that's interesting is how Jesus validates this, and it's validated even in the language that the, that the text is translated from. It's insane. We know it's true because he's told us, if you're born again, life eternal, life eternal. You know what you say, everybody, everybody say death. Come on, say death. death. Go like this. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Die what? Big deal. You, go to, you, you, you immediately go to be with the Lord. But if you don't know Jesus, you've got a big problem. You say, I don't believe it. Well, when you die, you will believe it. You will believe it. See, the, the people believe, the people think that truth is determined by what they believe. Truth is not determined by what you believe. Truth is accessed through faith. But truth is not determined by, by faith. So in other words, I believe this, therefore it's true. No, this is true, therefore you believe it. And people think that, well, I don't believe that I'm lost, and I don't believe I need Jesus, and I believe that there are many ways to God, and I don't believe that this is true. Well, truth is not determined by what you believe. You see it in the physical world. Jump off a building and say, I don't believe in gravity. The truth of gravity will show up and prove to you that your belief system is not greater than what is true. And when you die without Christ, no matter what your truth is, what you believe is true, you will be confronted with the reality of what truth really is, in Christ or without him. Man, died, man has been born under sin, therefore he is condemned under the judgment of sin. We must be born again. We must come out from under and unto. We all have a sin problem, every single one of us does. We're not only born sinners, we're born of the house of Adam, we're born into the house of brokenness. We need the Lord in every sphere of our life. The scripture simply puts it like this. You must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, which is a revelatory experience, right? Nor can you enter the kingdom of God. Jesus puts it up in two spheres. You're able to see and experience and know the kingdom of God if you're born again. Some of you are Christians and you've never seen, known, or experienced the kingdom of God in any way. What are you waiting for? But if you're not a kingdom, if you're not a Christian, you not only you don't even know it exists. And if you're not a Christian, you're not, you're not even aware that it exists, but you're completely outside of it. You say, what do I do about it? The Bible gives you a really simple thing. He says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead. He says, if you do this, you'll be saved. You say, it sounds too simple. And I would say to you, what a high price was paid to make it so simple. 
An extraordinarily high price was paid to make it that easy. And the reason that the Lord makes it easy is he wills that none should perish, that all should come to him. And he makes it easy because the only condition is the laying down of your ego, the opening of your heart. That's all it is. And for whatever reason, that is the hardest thing for some people to do, is to lay down their ego and accept that Jesus is Lord. That is insanely difficult, and like I don't understand why. This is the offer you don't refuse. This is the offer you cannot refuse. There's no offer like this in a lifetime. So we're going to pray. We're going to close the service this way. We'll probably have a prayer team available. If your prayer team's here, if you would make your way over there. If you need prayer, we'll be a prayer team available for you over there. I'm just going to take a moment. If you've never given your life to Christ, you say, I don't ever remember doing this. I was raised in a church. You must be born again. My parents are Christians. You must be born again. You have to own this for yourself. And so today's an opportunity for you to open your heart. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Everybody's going to pray with us. Those at home, same deal. Very simple, 40-second, eternity-changing prayer. And let's pray. Just open up your heart and say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. I don't understand this, and I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. All that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on. Good stuff. All right. We'll have a prayer team available. If you need prayer for anything, let me bless you one more time. Just open a gap. It's blessed and you're coming in. Blessed and you're going out. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.